If you will, open up in your Bibles with me to Matthew 22. Amen. Yes. Matthew 22, we get excited about the word here at The View. And this is where we are going to end our series tonight. We're going to end our series looking at the greatest command. And so if you're taking notes, and I hope that you are tonight, I have a few things I want to send home with you. Uh, the title for tonight's message, the last message in our It's Not About Me Volume 2 series is this. It's not just a command. It's not just a command. And now I do want to take a moment to recap the series because it's been an amazing six weeks. I was telling some of our leaders over the weekend, we had lunch with some of the guys uh, about how this semester has been so encouraging and so fruitful and so fun to be a part of. God has really had a special hand of favor over this semester uh, in terms of just what he's doing here, what he's doing on campus. It's been really fun to be a part of, and I know that you feel that too. God's really doing something special. Well, we've talked about some pivotal things over the last uh, five weeks, and this is week number six. You'll remember the key verse for this series, what we kind of, what we grabbed a hold of and said, hey, this is going to be our core verse for this idea of, it's not about me, was Galatians 2.20, right? That has been the, the foundation of this series. Each one of our topics that we've covered in this series kind of goes back to the idea that Paul lays out in Galatians chapter 2. And that verse says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. So the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. Amen? Amen. It's okay to make noise in church. Amen. That's kind of the, yeah, hallelujah. Amen. And what we, do, what we have done is we've walked through some big topics that 18 to 25-year-olds face. And we've looked to see what does Scripture have to say on these issues, on these areas of our lives, right? The first thing we looked at is the cross because everything in Christianity goes back to the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? That is the, uh, Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith and the resurrection is what we put our hope in. And so we looked at the cross and the resurrection first. From there, we begin to say, okay, we are 18 to 24-year-olds, 18 to 25-year-olds, and what are the things that we're walking through in our life where we need scriptural guidance? And the first one that we looked at, if you'll remember, was career, right? We are all trying to figure out what we're going to do with our life, whether that be our degree, whether that be uh, the job that we work. We're trying to figure out what the purpose of our life is. And then we talked about what it means to come in here, to be together, to worship, to gather, to how sacred it is to be a part of the church, to be a part of a college ministry, to worship the Lord together. From there, Valentine's Day came. We talked about singleness and relationships and what it means to be godly when you're single and to be godly when you're married and what those two areas of our lives look like. From there, somebody help me. What was after Valentine? Anybody remember? Come on, I'm testing some memories here. Ryan, come on, man. Look back in your notes. What you got for me, big dog? Oh, there it is. Come on, campus ministry. We talked about sharing the gospel and how that is literally crucial to our faith. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate you, man. Crucial to our faith and what it means to tell other people about the Lord Jesus and how that is quite literally our mission is to love God, love people, share Jesus, and make disciples. Well, tonight we get to the command. And so this is a text that is very, very famous because Jesus quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 when he's asked a question. And what I want to lay out for you tonight is the idea of what Jesus says are the two greatest commands for us. And these two commands that he gives are the commands that go back to this idea of it's not about me. Because the commands he gives are, we're going to see it in a minute, but to love God and love people, right? Love your neighbor. The greatest things he tells us to do is to love him first. And from that comes an overflow for our neighbor. Now, I want to give you a quote before we look at Matthew 22. And this quote comes from C.S. Lewis. It's a really good quote. It comes from Mere Christianity. It says this, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Just act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the greatest secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. Isn't that good? That comes from C.S. Lewis's book on mere Christianity. And he talks about this in his book, about this idea of how we often do things when we feel like it. But we don't always do them if we don't feel like it. And he says, hey, if you don't feel like pursuing God, pursue God anyways, and in that you will find a real joy for the Lord, right? That if you will just do what is right, whether you feel like it or not, if you will just love your neighbor, whether you think you do or not, if you will just love them, you're tapping into one of the greatest secrets, and that is you will, be, you will start to love them. And this really comes to life when you have to love somebody who's annoying. Does anybody have somebody like that in their life, right? All right, if you don't have your hand up, <laughs> you might be that person, right? <laughs> All right, I'm just saying, look, I, I, look, Hannah will have her hand up. She's like, oh, it's not always easy to love Daniel, okay? It's hard, but when you start to just act like you did, 
and you start to treat them with the love of Christ, you begin to have a real, genuine love for them. And this is the same concept that C.S. Lewis applies to loving the Lord as a whole, whether we feel like it or not. And so this idea that we're going to look at, the two greatest commands, that everything else from the law and the prophets depend on these two commands, is huge for us in the Christian faith. And what I want to pose to you tonight is that for us to do this, for us as 18 to 25-year-olds, and I'm 28 and I'm only three years removed, for us to do this, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as if they were ourselves, it is going to require the Holy Spirit in us. Amen? Because we wake up on days and we don't always want to love God, especially when our flesh is pursuing sin. You know what I'm talking about. We're going to be honest tonight. And then with our neighbor, it's not always easy to love the person next to us. So how do we do it? We have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God in us. And so let's look at what it says in Matthew 22. This is towards the end of the gospel of Matthew, the kingdom gospel. It talks all about the kingdom that has arrived, and that is the kingdom of Christ. And Jesus is going to be approached, and let's go ahead and look at it. This is starting in verse 34. Starting in verse 34 of chapter 22. It'll be on the screen. It says this. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him, that being Jesus. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Verse 37 says this. He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest command and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and Lord, we thank you that your word does not return void, and Father, we thank you for the campus ministry we've had this semester, the, the intentional, fruitful conversations at U of M that we've been able to have about faith in Jesus and the relationships we've been able to build each week. Father, I thank you for everybody in here under the sound of my voice who has come tonight with spring break approaching to worship you, to hear a word from you, not me, from you, to grow. Lord, I thank you that we have been gathered here tonight with the intent to worship you. Lord, we pray that you would speak. In order to love you with our heart and in order to love our neighbor, we need your guidance, your strength. So Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit tonight. And Lord, we ask that if anybody in here does not have a personal relationship with you, that they would consider starting that tonight, that you would save someone in here tonight, Lord. God, thank you for this place. We pray that you would bind the enemy in the name of Jesus from this place. We pray that you would bind the enemy in the name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the word of God, and the Spirit of God from this place, because he is a loser and has no hold here, and we walk in victory. So, Lord, we love you. If that's your prayer tonight, would you say amen? Amen. Well, let's start to walk through this tonight. So, number one, straight from the text, love the Lord your God. The greatest command. There's no reason to reword it, no reason to alliterate it. Love the Lord your God. That that is, quite literally, if you could approach Jesus in person, face to face, and ask him, what is the most important thing to do with your life? The most, and I want you to think about this, because a lot of us who grew up in the Christian faith have this here, but we miss it a lot of times in our daily life, that the most important thing you could do in your life is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That that is the greatest thing you can do. That is where you will have an impact on this planet, is to do that, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, not partially, but fully. Not in some ways, in all ways. Not on some days, but on all days, right? Not in good situations, but in good and bad situations, and all the ones in between. That quite literally, if you were face-to-face -face with Jesus and asked him, what is my life for? He would tell you that. The greatest command, the purpose of your life, is to know God and to love God, to know me, to know Jesus, and to walk with him. And all of us in here, whether we're Gen Z or millennial, I might be the only millennial in the room, all of us would say, as believers, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, then you know, like, hey, this is, you know, not my purpose. And we can talk, I would love to talk to you afterwards. But if you're like a believer and you're a Christian, then you would say, yeah, I understand that concept. Like, I get it. Like, I know that loving God is the most important thing for me to do. My question to you and me is, how often is that truly the most important thing in our life? How often do we truly live that way? That God is really number one that there's nothing that comes before him, that there's nothing in our lives that should take priority over him. 
Do we operate from that place with the Lord? Because everything else in your life is going to flow from that command. Like everything that you produce in your life is going to flow from number one. And some of you guys, some of us in this room, and I've been there, like we have some nasty stuff produced in our life. I told you, we're going to get honest tonight. Like we have jealousy, we have hate, we have bitterness. Like we have things in our life that we see active that are not of God. We have strife with people. We have arguments with people. We go back and, we go back and forth with people. We, we get passive aggressive towards people. Like we have stuff in our life that we know is wrong. We have things that we get addicted to on our phones, things that we can't stop looking at, things that consume our mind that, are, that we would look at and say, yes, this is something in my life that's being produced that is not godly. And all that, anything in your life that is not godly that is being produced is coming from a lack of obedience to command number one. That is the key to rooting out stuff that does not belong in your life. Hear me. If you have something in your life that is sinful, that is ungodly, just loving your neighbor is not going to get it out of your life. But we act as if it will. Why? Because your neighbor does not have the power through just their fellowship to strengthen you to the point where you can overcome sin and strongholds. Right? They don't. Even though we put them up on a, on a pedestal and think that the people in our life do, they don't. That that sin and that darkness and that strongholds in your life, in order to overcome those in your life, it comes from loving God because he is holy, right? His spirit lives in you. And as you get closer with him, as you walk closer with him, he empowers you to then overcome those sins and those strongholds and that darkness that you have in your life, that hurt and that pain. He is the one. So man, as you look at your life, as you look at your daily interactions, as you look at the things you're producing, the words you say, the thoughts you have, the actions you're committing, those are coming from somewhere. And it's either, either an overflow of your time with God, which that will be good and righteous and fruits of the Spirit, or it will be an overflow of you, too much you, too much flesh, too much self. I shared this a few sermon series ago, many times ago, that there was a time I would go out to the park where I got saved, right? And I would go out there to be with God. And all of us in here, man, if we're honest, know, like, when it comes to being with God, we're very good at setting up the scene like we're with God, but missing God, right? Has anybody else ever been in that type of situation before? Man, where you got the Spotify worship playlist on lock, you got the highlighters, you got the notepad, you got it all laid out. You got everything, you got the coffee, right? You got everything laid out to have the perfect quiet time with the Lord and still miss him, right? Because even setting the perfect scene doesn't always just mean you're going to have time with the Lord because if your mind's not there and if your heart's not there, it does not say, and again, there's nothing wrong with highlighters. I love highlighters, amen? But it doesn't say love the Lord your God with like what you lay out in front of you during that time. It says love the Lord your God with your heart and your mind and your soul. That's an internal thing that you can't just display. And I would go to this park and I would realize that I would go to the park to pray, and this was years ago, but I would go out there and I would think more than I would pray. And at first, I would think of the things of the Lord, but the more I went out there, I realized, man, I'm actually coming out here and I'm worrying. Like I'm coming out here to pray, but I get out here and I start thinking about tomorrow. And I'm like walking around the park where I got saved. And I'm thinking about my fears and my worries and my struggles and all these things are going through my mind. I'm thinking about me, 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 me. And I left the park like more empty than when I got there. Like I left where I was going to meet God unfilled. I left more empty. And here's the reason why. I said it a few sermon series ago. I was going out there to get more of God, but I was only getting more of myself. Because if your mind and your heart are not set on God, you're not receiving him. You're just receiving more of you. So I would say, what do you see being produced in your life? And only you can answer that because you got a private life, as we all do. What's coming up out of the ground? All right? What's being planted and what's coming up? And so the first thing I want to give you straight from the text is this. A... God is looking for a heart that is in love with the Lord. A heart that is in love with God. From the heart, from whatever is in the heart, overflows out of the mouth. That this means a heart that is in love with God. Jesus, God bless you. Jesus says this in John chapter 14. Just a few verses after saying that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He says this, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the father who sent me. 
That's the thing about the Christian faith, that when we love God, there's an obedience involved, right? That in order to truly love Jesus, that means there is an obedience. And when you obey, you're following God. He is planting things in your heart. He's planting good and holy and righteous things within you. He's planting peace and hope and love and all these things in your heart. And guess what? When he's planting things in your heart, stuff grows from that that is good and helps other people so that you can love your neighbor. Because if it's just me trying to love my neighbor all on my own, I'm not very good at it. I'll be honest. I'm not. I'm, I'm impatient. <laughs> I get annoyed and I'm introverted. So I run out of energy quick. Introverts, you know what I'm talking about. I run out of energy quick. I'm like, all right, how can I get out of this room as quick as possible? <laughs> love me, then obey me, is what Jesus says. If you love me, a heart that is in love with me listens and obeys. A heart that is in love with Jesus says yes. Whether we want to or not, a heart that is in love with Jesus says, hey, I'm going to say yes to the commands that you have given me. What does that look like for you in your life? Because you can't do both. You got flesh. You have a flesh to you that is dying for you to obey it instead of the Lord Jesus. And scripture talks about this. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount said this about two masters. Matthew 6, verse 24 says, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then Jesus says this, you cannot serve both God and money. So man, I want to ask you, is your heart in love with the Lord? Genuinely, is mine? You can't answer that for me. I, I can't answer it for you. But I know that when you're in love with someone, there's affection in there. Some of us in here have been in love with somebody before. Some of us think we've been in love with somebody before, but we really haven't. I know what it's like with my wife that my heart is in love with her because there's an affection there, right? There's a desire to spend time with my wife. And here's one of the greatest things you learn that's hard to live out, man. Listen, we both will tell you it's hard to live out that service, right, serving somebody, service leads to the greatest intimacy. Love comes through service which leads to the greatest intimacy. Why do you think Jesus washed the disciples' feet? Because through his service increased their intimacy. So let me ask you a question. If that's true, do you have affection for Jesus in the sense that you're willing to serve him? Like serve, service to Christ. Because hey, hey, not because of a religion, not just because the Bible tells me so, but because like God loves me, I love him, I want to know him, so I'm gonna obey because only good stuff comes when I obey. Like, is that present in your life, in your heart? Because if that is, listen, if you're obeying and you're serving him and you have intimacy with Jesus and your heart has affection for Jesus, your actions look different than the world. You're not trying to serve the world and serve the king because <laughs> the world's going to bow down to the king in the end anyway. Amen. <laughs> what do you see in your heart? A heart that is in love with the Lord. That like whether anybody knows if you spent time with God or not, you're going to spend time with him. Whether it's ever on social media or not, whether you ever tell anybody or not, you want to spend time with God for you because you get so much out of it and you get to serve him. Man, I'll tell you, listen, there is nothing stopping you from doing that now because we think it's rocket science, right? We often think we got to get cleaned up before we get in the baptism waters. That doesn't make sense. We think we have to clean up ourselves before we come to Jesus. That doesn't make sense. I heard of one of my best friend's testimony is that his parents, before they came to know Jesus, drank a lot of alcohol to the point where they got drunk. And finally, when they came to know Jesus, they went home, they took all the alcohol, they poured it all out in the sink, never took another drink that night, said, hey, I'm done. And I love that illustration because that's so clear of how it is that if you have junk in your life and you're like, hey, I want to repent, I want to turn to Jesus, empty it, give it, repent of it. Like, say, hey, Jesus, I can't do anything with this sin. It's yours. You died for it. Strengthen me to overcome it. And start walking towards Jesus. And as you walk towards him, he continues to draw you closer. Empty yourself so that he can fill you up, so that you have a heart that is in love with him. But he doesn't just talk about the heart. He also says this, be a soul that is dependent on God. Be is a soul that is dependent on on God. But sadly, we can't climb the stairway to heaven 
Because that would be a long journey. B is a soul that is dependent on God. I love this verse in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 41 verse 13. It says, For I am the Lord your God, who holds your right hand, who says to you, Do not fear. I will help you. Paul, when he was in prison, in his letter to the people of Philippi, said towards the end of his letter, when he got towards the end of his life, he said this, he said, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. Man, that's tough. To be content in all circumstances because you have Christ. Could you say that? Could I? That if he holds your soul and he holds your room in heaven, he holds your place for all eternity. Do you believe he is holding on to you in this life to follow him daily? A soul that is dependent on God for eternity and on this earth. But not only that, see, Jesus says this, a mind that is devoted to God. A mind that is devoted to God. So look at these three. I can't analyze this for you. Your neighbor can't. The person next to you can't. Your mom and your dad can't. Only you can. And only you can do anything about it. A heart that's in love with God. A soul that's dependent on God. And a mind that is devoted to God. It's amazing how much temptation we have surrounding us. Is it not? I guess I'm preaching to this piano back here. What you think, piano? Man, we got a lot of temptation in this culture, don't we? Man, I'm telling you, everywhere you look, there's temptation. Everywhere. If you have a social media account, you have temptation in front of you at any time. You do. Like, for you and I, to keep our minds devoted to God is a 24-7 job. Even when you're sleeping. You got to give your sleep to the Lord. Because every time you get on social media... Your mind is tempted to see and to entertain things that pull you so far from the Lord, whether that be comparison, comparing your real life to someone else's highlight reel, whether that be lust for men and women, the things that we have access to with pornography, with sexual immorality, our culture, our music, our media celebrates it, it's praised, it's highlighted, it's loved, it's available to you, whatever you need, it's available to you, it's celebrated in our culture. I think the hardest thing keeping your heart and my heart from being in love with God is that we don't know what to do with our minds when it comes to being devoted to God. We try to spend time with him, we try to love him, and then we get on social media or we go on our campus or we go to work and immediately we see or we hear something that takes us away from him and boom, our mind is not devoted to God, it's devoted to culture. Like for you and me to walk closely with the Lord, it is a 24-7 pursuit of him. Amen. For some of you, there might need to be a fast that happens. Have you ever considered that? Have you ever fasted? That means you give up something earthly in order to gain something heavenly. The best definition I ever heard of fasting is that you give up something earthly in order to gain something heavenly. Heavenly. Seriously. Have you ever considered fasting from social media to help your mind be devoted to God? Some of you couldn't. Like some of us in the room, if we're honest, couldn't get off social media. We couldn't do without our phone for a week. Like we couldn't. Why? Because we're devoted to other people, but we don't have that same devotion for the Lord. I love you. I'm telling you, I'm in the same boat, but hear me. That's real. Like some of us couldn't go two days without being able to be connected to anybody at any time. Like we couldn't do without it. Like it would be torture, <laughs> torture to do without. And if that's the case for you and me, we're in a generation that is more devoted to connectivity than we are intimacy with the Lord. What happened if you, what would happen if you fasted? I'm serious. Like coming out of this series, it's not about me, where we die to ourselves. What would it look like for you and me to give up something earthly? That might be social media. That might be a meal. So that you can gain more of God. Would you do it? And I wish that we had more time to stay on this, but I do want to cover what I have in my second point with you. But the last thing I would do is just, Shut up and give you a minute to really evaluate before I move on. These three.
in your heart. Your soul. Your mind. I love the calmness in here, don't you? For some of us, this is the quietest our life's been in three or four days. Right now. Besides the ceiling. That our lives are so busy. There's so much noise. There's so many distractions. That we're, we are such so a cultural disadvantage of loving God with everything we have because we have all this surrounded with us and our generation doesn't know what to do. What if we just slow down and evaluate and pause and pray? Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 says this. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Devote yourself to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Now let me give you number two. The second command he says, and it's this. Love your neighbor. Woo! Love your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Think about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, who's my neighbor? So if you live on the first floor, of an apartment complex, right? Let's get technical. That's what the rich young ruler did. So if I live on the first floor, Jesus, the people on the second floor, I'm good, right? Because they make noise over me anyway. Their feet are stomping. So I don't have to love the second floor people, right? They're not a neighbor, right? And what's Jesus' response? <laughs> You've missed it. That your neighbor is proximity, whoever is in front of you, that is who you are called to love. And how are you called to love them? With the love of Jesus Christ. Now that is hard. That is tough. Paul says this. Some of the best verses many of us know from Philippians chapter 2. He says this in verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, Intent on one purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And all God's people said, amen. amen. To love your neighbor. That means hidden agendas, they're put away. Like there is no selfish ambition, there is no selfish agendas. I heard this story about this woman named Jamie Lang, and it's an incredible story because she was 23 years old, some of y'all's age, or older, five years younger than me, 23 years old. She flew from the U.S. to Tanzania with $2,000 in her savings account, flew to Tanzania. She was a Christian. She got there, and she was broken over the needs that she encountered in Tanzania, right? The, the brokenness and the poverty was, was hard to deal with. The lostness was hard to deal with. For this woman named Jamie, and the story is really remarkable, she started praying to God, and this was her prayer, right? She didn't run from it. She didn't run back to the U.S. She got to Tanzania. She saw the needs that were there, and she started praying, and this was her prayer. Imagine praying this prayer. This would be hard to pray. She prays this. She says, God, use me radically to change someone's life here. How many of us, when we get out in the world and see the mess of it, we're like, okay, let me get out of this as quick as I can instead of praying to radically change somebody's life in the middle of it. We're right here in Memphis in a city that has so much poverty and so many of us are so quick to run from the needs that people have instead of praying that God would use us to help meet a need. We talked about that last week, right? She says, hey, I'm going to stay. Lord, use me, please, to change somebody's life radically. Then she meets an 83-year-old woman at the church that she was going to who has a baby like on her back, right? Jamie learned that the baby's mother was dying from AIDS. And this woman was the only one who was taking care of this child because her mom was in a condition where she couldn't take care of this little, this little boy. And so Jamie, what she begins to do, she's 23 years old. She begins, Aliana, to buy formula for the little boy and to provide for him. The baby was half the size of a normal, healthy baby. 
And as Jamie began to take care of her, Jamie fell in love with the baby, right? Like she had baby fever. She loves this baby, right? She starts caring about this baby. She's like starts seeing the future that this child could have. You can imagine. And she starts having these thoughts in her heart. And this is what happened. She began to wonder if it would be foolish for a 23-year-old single white American to adopt a baby. She begins asking that question. Would this be foolish? Would this be crazy? Would this be wild? Now, before the baby's mother died, before the baby's mother passed away from AIDS, she came to Jamie and she said this. This is a true story. She said, I have heard of how you are taking care of my son. And listen to this, Cody. And I have never known such a love. Her next words were, I want to be saved. And that calls to mind, hallelujah, praise the Lord. That calls to mind Jesus' words, right? Stay with me. That the world will know you by your love. That your love for each other, the way you treat each other, the way you would treat a baby, would point people to the gospel of Christ. And so Jamie led her to the Lord. Now watch this. This is cool. Jamie leads her to the Lord. Just before she died, this is what the mom said. I know my son is taken care of, and I will see him in heaven someday. Amen? Hallelujah. I'm telling you, wipe away the tear. It's a true story. The baby is now five years old, healthy, and HIV negative. And Jamie, since adopting, got married, had a little girl, and is moving her family to Tanzania. And you would never see her on TV or social media, her story would never be celebrated that way. But that is the love that Christ says the world should know us by, that a woman in Tanzania would give her life to Christ on her deathbed because of how she treated her child. Can you imagine? There's nothing special about that woman. What's stopping you from loving your neighbor that way? In fact, it's a command. I love how Peter lays it out in 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at this verse on the screen, verse 5 to 8. Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Look, he doesn't say your advanced faith or your rookie faith. He just says your faith. That there's not a level you get to in your faith where you begin supplementing it with more. No, when you give your life to Jesus, when you have a faith in him, you're called to start acting on it. And here's how. Supplement your faith, whatever you have right now, your current faith, today's faith, 2023 faith, 2023 you. Not 2025 you, not 2028 you, not 2019 you, 2023 you, your faith with this, goodness. Goodness with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with endurance. Endurance with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, it means you're growing, these are increasing, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those verses are incredible. They're stout, but those verses are incredible because Peter gives you a groundwork and a framework of what it means to have a faith that is growing that is impacting people, that you would have a faith that doesn't just stay with you. It overflows into your neighbor's life. The person literally next door, but also the person sitting next to you in this seat is your neighbor, yours, mine. Stout verse, 1 John 4, verse 20 says this, if anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And then Luke chapter 6, even more stout, verse 32 to 36, and I promise I got subpoints for you with some action steps to help you, but I'm telling you, we need this. This won't be on the screen. I added this last minute. Luke 6, 32 to 36 says this, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Woo, isn't it easy to love those who love you? Amen. I'm telling you, not enough people said amen. I guess for you, it's easy to love your enemies. It's not for me. I guess for you, it's easy to love those who disagree with everything you say. But Jesus says this. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. Here's what Jesus says. But love your enemies. Love your 
enemies. That's a Christian love that looks like God's love. Because guess what? In our sin, we made ourselves enemies to God. We rebelled against God. So God's love for you is what Jesus is telling you to do. He's telling you, hey, you really want to know what God is like? Love your enemies. Because you were once an enemy to God when you were living in sin, living in darkness, not chasing after him. You made yourself an enemy against God. And he still pursued you. He still died on the cross for your sins. When you love your enemies, that is a love that Jesus displayed. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. He goes on to say that's not all of it. Do what is good. And lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High, for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. Now, from 2 Peter, let me give you some subpoints of what Peter laid out. Here's the first one. A, a posture of humility. So how do you love your neighbor? In 2023, in a culture that is telling you to compete against your neighbor, to outdo your neighbor, to make more money than your neighbor, to be more famous than your neighbor, to be more popular than your neighbor, to have a better car than your neighbor, right? Everybody wants the nicest car on the street. Got to pull up every single day from work. Pull up on the lot. A posture of humility. That's what scripture calls us to have. That we cannot love our neighbor unless we have a posture of humility. I truly believe that when you look at the Christian culture we have around us. You see it all over social media. Me and my wife were just talking about the other day. I believe the biggest repellent to the lost world is pride in Christians. I really do. I really do. I stand by from personal experience. And when you read about revivals, when people truly got on fire for the Lord, they got on fire for the Lord because they saw Christians loving them from a posture of humility with a real love of Christ, and they wanted it too. The most, hear me, the most, the most unattractive thing to the lost world is a Christian's ego. It is so unattractive. Like, it is so unattractive. At 21 years old, show me a bunch of Christians who are proud that they have their life all together, and I'll show you a religion I don't want to be a part of. (laughs) Because I know what your religion said. At 21 years old, I know what your Bible said. I know your Bible said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that because of Jesus, he made a way for you, and it's only because of him that you're going into heaven. At 21, I knew what the Bible said about that. And you're going to walk around me with an ego and be proudful with your chest out? I know (laughs) I know. Some of you are nodding your head. You're with me. I know what your Bible says. I don't want that. If that's how you're going to live. That was my attitude at 21. Man, you want to be a soul winner? I want to be a soul winner? Would we be meek? Would we be lowly? Would we be humble? To the point where our posture is visibly seen as one that does not care about having an ego or having the nicest car or proving ourselves or making our life all about us. Would it be a posture that is truly like, hey, Cam, I love you. I want you to be a part of this ministry and be a part of this family. And I don't want you to see any ego in me because it's not worth it. I died to it. I died to it when I got crucified with Christ. I died to it. Would that be us? Because on the flip side, the most attractive thing to the lost world is Believers who love each other with no agenda because you can't get that anywhere else in the world because it's only made possible through the Spirit of God. There is no way that you can experience the supernatural love of Christ apart from Christ, which means we as the church have that supernatural opportunity to love people that way because we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. You want to win souls over? Fix your posture and be humble. Let me fix mine. Humility. Not the tough guy, not the girl who's got it all together, but the one who is humble and just wants to see people get the gospel of Jesus Christ. A posture of humility. That how can we love our neighbor if we're trying to outdo them? Mm. It's hard to love somebody you're competing with. It's hard to love somebody you're trying to outdo. That's why scripture says in Proverbs 11, verse 2, when arrogance comes, disgrace follows. But with humility comes wisdom. I love this quote by Winston Churchill. I think this is really fantastic if you want to write this down. It says, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Woo, that's good. You can make a living by what you get, but you make a life by what you give. You make an impact eternally by what you give not just what you get. A posture of humility. Proverbs 11, verse 25 says this, a generous person will be enriched and the one who gives a drink of water 
will receive water. A posture of humility. But not only that, B, I'll give you this one, a willingness to listen and learn. How do you love your neighbor? We can't be hot shots, right? Can't desire the things of the world to be the one everybody admires and thinks highly of. It doesn't matter. You got to be humble, but also a willingness to listen and learn. Jesus was the king of asking questions. Whenever Jesus needed to know something or needed somebody else to know something, he asked him a question. Peter says in his letter in that first chapter, he says, let your faith increase and supplement with knowledge that we would be ones who listen and learn. There's no way to gain knowledge without listening, without learning. Understand that loving your neighbor requires you asking them a question. That's tough. It's practical, but it's tough. I'll tell you this. A verse I love on this comes from Proverbs 18, verse 15. The mind of the discerning acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks it. You want to love your neighbor? You need to know about your neighbor. You want to love that person that goes to your gym every week? You got to ask that person a question at your gym. You want to know the people in your class? You got to ask them a question. You want to know your coworkers? You got to ask them a question. Like, we don't desire to listen and learn, and that's why we don't have the relationships we believe we should have. A really good quote on this from Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. It'll be on the screen. Christians so often think they must always contribute something when they are in the company of others that this is the one service they have to render. They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. To listen, to learn, to one day look over the fence and ask your neighbor in the yard a question about their life or today to look over to the person in the very next seat to you, your neighbor for the night, to ask them a question before you leave. But man, y'all know Gen Z, y'all know millennials. When you're ever in conversation with somebody, can you tell by their eyes that they've checked out from that conversation? Yeah, because Gen Z is not stupid. Millennials are not stupid. We are not stupid. Well, we know. Like when you're talking to somebody, you can tell when they're not in that conversation. You can tell when you check out of the conversation too, by the way. Amen? Like you can tell in yourself. You can be like, yes, I'm definitely not here right now. You've done 30s, man, that's crazy, right? 30 of those, like, wow, and you just checked out trying to get out of the conversation. Because, bro, in our conversations, we love to talk. But how often do we ask questions? The neighbor next to you, the person sitting next to you, a willingness to listen and to learn. Not only that, but Peter says this in his letter, see a commitment to be consistent. A commitment to be consistent. To love your neighbor. Supplement your faith with goodness. Goodness with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with endurance. Endurance with godliness. A commitment to be consistent. To be present. Proverbs 18, verse 24 says this, One with many friends may be harmed, but there is a friend who stays closer than a brother. I love Billy Graham's quote on this. I'll give you this if you want to write it down or take a picture. It says, The will of God will not take us where the grace of God cannot sustain us. Amen? The will of God will not take us where the grace of God cannot sustain us. That in our relationships with the people around us, with our neighbors, with our classmates, with our loved ones, a commitment to be consistent with that neighbor. A commitment to show up. When you show up at that coffee shop, you're going to ask that person, you're going to ask that worker about their prayer requests. When you talk to somebody here on a Monday night, you're going to follow up on their prayer requests. I talked to somebody last week about their prayer requests. I have a plan to hopefully follow up tonight and say, hey, we talked about this last week. How did it go? Tell me. The people we prayed over, how did it go? The people at your gym, the people in your class, the people in your family, to be consistent to show up. And then the very last one is this D, a godly, forgiving, supernatural love. And I'm going to give you a minute to write that down. A godly, forgiving, supernatural love. One of the reasons that this semester has been so fun is that 
a lot of us have been able to do a lot of ministry together. A lot of us have been at campus ministry. A lot of us are at life groups on Wednesdays. A lot of us are getting close and being bonded because we're doing ministry together. And I've been reading this book by Jim Cimbala. He came here to uh, Awesome August at Bellevue. If you know Jim Cimbala, he pastors the Brooklyn Tabernacle in Brooklyn, New York. And he's a pastor there. And they meet in a beautiful, me and my wife have been there. We went for their New Year's Eve service. And it's a beautiful, beautiful Orpheum-like theater where they meet and they do worship. And he wrote a book. I think this, this might be his first book. I don't know if it is or not, but he may have written many others. But it's a book called Fan the Flame. And it's about Jim Cimbala, and it's not our bookstore. It's a fantastic book. But he shared a story in this. I read it to my team. I read it to Ryan when we met for discipleship. And it's an incredible, incredible story. And I knew when I read this, I was like, I, if I'm doing a sermon on loving God and loving your neighbor, this is where I need to end. And I asked them, I said, man, should I try to rewrite this out? And they told me just literally read it straight from the page because it's such a good story. And I believe that this really does encapsulate the purpose of the Christian life that a lot of us in here are doing ministry. We're wanting to bring glory to his name. And this, this story really is incredible. I promise it'll only take me a minute. But listen to this. Jim Cimbala, who's a pastor, says this after their Easter services, right? He said, uh, in fact, I'm gonna sit down for story time, amen? <laughs> like a grandpa. All right, kids, let's check in. This is what he says. This is where we're gonna land tonight. He said, I've told this story many times, but I wanna share it here. I don't know whether this happens where you live, but in New York City, folks who hardly ever step inside a church will show up for our Christmas and Easter service. Typically, a lot of the people who aren't Christians come, and I don't know where they spend the rest of their year, but on those two days, they come out of the woodworks. On Easter, a line often winds around the building for each of our services. We prioritize sharing the gospel at these services, and I close the presentation by giving the gospel message and asking people to come forward to respond to Jesus Christ. We pray with them, we get to know them, we gather their information so we can follow up later. It's always fulfilling and it's always exhausting. I remember one Easter particularly. We had reached the end of our third service. I'd been on my feet most of the day, so I sat on the edge of the platform like I am right now, loosened my tie and collar. I don't have a tie on, <laughs> not that much. I haven't worn a tie in a while. And let out a few deep breaths. And then Jim Simula says this, and he says, then I saw him. Standing a few feet away in the middle aisle was a tall black man I had never seen before. He looked like he might be in his 50s. 50s. He stood there staring at me, shabbily dressed and holding a filthy-looking cap in his hands. His hat. He had taken it off because he walked inside. I confess that I thought, oh, great, the service is over. I'm tired, and now I'm going to get hit up by money, for money by one of the people who are on the street begging. That scenario is common because of where our church is located. We have a protocol we follow when this sort of thing happens. We don't want to give money to someone who's going to spend it to fuel their habit, but I didn't feel like going through the whole protocol. I figured I'd just give him a few bucks, and that would be it. He walked closer. I could see missing teeth, matted hair, several days' growth of beard. There was no telling when he had last showered. I got to turn the page I'm like a grandpa for real. <laughs> and then it hit me, the smell. Maybe the worst smell I have ever smelled. And this is what he says. It's graphic. He says, a combination of feces, urine, and alcohol. What's your name, I asked him. David, where did you stay last night? An empty truck. How come you're not in a shelter? By now, I was really fighting the odor. It was overwhelming, the smell. And he said, no shelter. I learned that David didn't like the idea of staying in a shelter, so he bounced from one place to another. He later told me that once he was in an abandoned apartment sleeping on a filthy mattress that had been left there, the cigarette he had been smoking fell into the mattress just as he was dozing off. Providentially, his brother walked in as the mattress was set ablaze. He almost died from his own cigarette. How long have you been on the street, I asked. A couple of years. I learned later that he had been lying in his own urine on the sidewalk next to our building. He heard the music, got up, and stood just outside a side door listening. He heard the gospel. He was ashamed to be seen by all the people, so he waited until the service was over before coming in. How many of us have felt that way with church before? Ashamed to come in the doors because everybody there has got it. It looks like they got it all put together and we're ashamed to walk in. I've been there. Not this bad, but I've been there. And you know what I'm talking about in your life too. You know. He was ashamed to come in and be seen by people. I just got to find where I was. Man, I'm like a grandpa for real got it. I thought, how much money should I give him? I fished a $10 bill from my money clip 
and started to hand it to him. But he pushed my hand away. This is what he said. I don't want your money. I want this Jesus you were talking about because I'm going to die out there. And just like that, in that moment, my heart melted. I started to cry quietly. You know who else also needed Jesus at that moment? I did. I prayed within, God, forgive me. You sent somebody I'm supposed to help, and I'm trying to send them away with a $10 bill. The Lord seemed to say, Jim, if you have any value to me, if you have any purpose in my work, it has to do with this odor, because this is the smell of the world that I died for. Just then, David broke down quietly as well. He wrapped his arms around me. I hugged him to myself, and we started rocking back and forth. I don't know for how long. He was crying. I was crying. And I can tell you that in that moment, the smell I had found so bad became like a beautiful fragrance to me. That was the beginning of a long relationship between David and our church. He is still special to my family. I led him to Christ. We got him into detox. And when he got out, we gave him a job working in our church. I had to assess how he was doing, and I wanted to be near him. He got cleaned up, had his teeth fixed, and it turns out he was only 32 years old and quite handsome. David spent Thanksgiving and Christmas at our house that year. For Christmas, he gave me a hanky, just a simple white hanky. I treasured it because it was the most meaningful Christmas gift I got that year. Time went by. David met a beautiful African girl in the church. They got married. I did the wedding. And he says, actually, I almost ruined the wedding because the minute David and I walked out on that platform and I saw the bride come in, I looked at David, handsome and dressed like a model for GQ magazine, and I lost it. I bawled like a baby. I composed myself for a time, but when we came to the vows, I started to say, do you take this man? And I lost it all over again. It turns out that serving the Lord with tears includes tears of joy, not only tears of anguish. Paul in 1 Thessalonians said, what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? I think that Paul's mind, some of the jewels in that crown were the tears he had shed for the people he loved so much. And that is the love that Jesus says we are to be known by in the world.